Welcome to TG2Cast. I'm your host, Aaron Blackwilder. Teachers who are going gradeless have discovered that points, scores, and grades get in the way of what we value most. Some teachers value the student's growth and development in the learning targets. Others value soft skills that extend beyond the classroom. And still others value engaging learners in opportunities to shape the world. In these circumstances, letter grades become a barrier. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Sarah Zerwin. Sarah teaches senior language arts and AP Lit at Fairview High School in Boulder, Colorado. And she's the author of the book, Pointless, An English Teacher's Guide to More. In this episode, Sarah and I discuss how she came to the conclusion that points and grades got in the way of what she valued as a teacher and how she transformed her classroom to circumvent grades and center on what it is that she wanted to instill in her students. Sarah, welcome. Thank you, Aaron. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. Um, so I, you have uh, this book out, uh, Pointless, and it's a phenomenal book. Um, so I'm curious, in writing this, this is all about um, why points get in the way of learning and how can we as teachers really inspire learning without using points. So what led you to the idea that points get in the way of learning? So I have a couple of really smart colleagues where I teach who realized this way before I did. And they were actually very much working on me to make a shift. And I definitely didn't think it was possible. I argued with them extensively about why I needed points and grades to keep my students working was the big thing. And I also didn't think that I could do anything else because it seemed like the most efficient way for me to go about it all. So, but anyhow, things were starting to trouble me a little bit. Like I would offer my students to uh, revise, to bring up their grade on a piece of writing and they would just look at the rubric and look for the easiest category to address, to bring up their grade. And usually it would just be, you know, fixing errors and things. And that's, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not, that's not revising, that's editing. And only a handful of my students would even take me up on the offer. And so the way that I was doing grades, I thought was definitely getting in the way of students doing authentic revision work. And then I also would see them choosing the easiest possible path to, to getting something done, just to this, just sort of this, this focus on just completing stuff, just to get it out of the way. And so with those, with all of that in my head, my colleagues having worked on me for a while, and um, just the things I was noticing in my classroom, I went to the NCTE conference in 2013, which was in Boston, and uh, went to see Alfie Cohn speak. And it was him actually hearing him talk about his research about the damage of grading. And I turned to the person sitting next to me who happened to be my assistant principal who was at the conference with us presenting that year. And I said, I'm done. I can't put another piece, another grade on another piece of writing ever again. And that was pretty much, pretty much it. So, and that was, you know, several semesters ago, I've, I've gotten better at it along the way, but that's definitely where it all started. It's funny, as you were talking about kids in revision and choosing the easiest path, so if it is about points and say they're writing an essay and we want them to elaborate on something, but all they do is just fix the capitalization and we give them a grade in the grade book, 
sans the elaboration, then we're saying that elaboration is not important. Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that, I completely agree with you. That was a hard, that was a huge sell for me was if it's, if the kids can get away without doing it, then it's not important. Yeah, totally. And they will focus on what we focus on. So mm -hmm. if we're focusing on all the things they need to do to earn points and all the ways they could lose points, then that's what they're going to focus on. So I definitely saw a shift in my classroom once I stopped focusing on points like that. It opened up this whole new focus on learning with my students. Yeah. Um, in your book, you emphasize the importance of learning targets um, in your class. So how did you identify the, the learning targets that you have for your students? And then how do you communicate these to your students so they know what they're learning? Yeah, so this is really the center of the whole process for me for shifting my focus from um, from points and onto learning and, sh and shifting the kids' focus from points onto learning. The very first semester that I went gradeless, so it was that that um, starting in January, right after that NCTE conference in 2013, so January 2014, I came back and I asked my students. I said, "Should we?" Um, should we go ahead and, you know, do something different with grades? And mm -hmm. I talked them through all the reasons why I wanted to. Um, I listened to their concerns. And then I said to them, um, well, what do you think? And I had each kid write down on a piece of paper because I wanted to hear from each kid individually what they wanted to do. And it was 100% of them were like, let's try it. Let's try doing something different with grades. But what I did then is I set... Um, all of the Common Core state standards for 12th grade reading and writing, which is over 60 standards, yeah. said, this is what you're going to need to work on then. And it was too like big of a focus that it was almost as if we didn't have a focus. And it wasn't something that the kids could see clearly or that I could really see clearly. It was too big, too much just too complicated to keep track of because if you take points out of the center of your classroom as the thing that organizes everything where students will you ask students to do something and you pay them with points and then they cash them in for grades if you take that mm -hmm. whole exchange out of the center of the classroom you've got to put something else in its place and what i put was this enormous document this huge list of standards and it was an utter failure there's a story about that in my book and yeah. um Anyhow, so what I have done since then is realize I have to make that thing that's sitting in the center of my classroom really clear and easy for my students to hold in their head and easy for me to hold in my head because every decision I make in the classroom has got to be anchored on that set of learning goals so that everything holds together. And mm -hmm. so what I recommend actually in my book, this is all in chapter two, takes my readers through this process. I recommend that they start with just articulating uh, what they value as a teacher, like what really matters to you about what you teach, because those implicit values do color everything that we do. And we might as well make them explicit so we can um, anchor them and use them to our advantage and work intentionally with them. So I ask teachers to start with that and then approach the huge list of standards and curriculum expectations that we all have. Some of them are written out explicitly. Some of their, them are implicit expectations that we all have to deal with. Like, this is the way we do it here at this school kind of thing. And to sort through all of those things, using your values as a teacher to help you whittle it down to a list that is is workable for you and your students. For me, um, I found that about 10 learning goals is right. Any more than that 
seems like too much. And the 10, I can, I can rattle them off to you right now because I yeah. know them that well. There's only 10 of them. And they're very much in like common sense language, like revise to improve a piece of writing is one of them. And that is really direct and concrete and concise. And it doesn't have all of that language in it that the standards have. Of course, I'm still using the standards. I'm still teaching towards the standards. I'm still planning with the standards because that's what I have to do. But I don't think that the kids need to see them necessarily. And yeah. so, um, you know, what I put in front of them is just this nice, tight set of learning goals for them. So and um, I think that they can hold those in their thinking as well, just like I can. And I do not actually give those goals to them on the first day of school. Um, I really feel like they need to understand what the work of the class looks like before they really understand the goals. And so we just focus on the first few weeks of school. We focus on learning behaviors because uh -huh. I found that my students have learned how to be point collectors. That uh -huh. is not the same as learning how to learn. And right. so I feel like I have to very deliberately shift their behaviors away from point collecting and onto the kinds of student behaviors that really support learning. And so we have an explicit conversation about that, like in the first week of school. And then I invite them just to try to to improve their learning behaviors for the first few weeks and just do all the work that I'm asking of them and just don't even worry about the grade or anything else. Um, and then after they get familiar with the course and what we're working on, that's when I show them the learning goals. And uh, at that point, I feel like they they make a lot more sense. So, yeah. so, so um, you you rely on this feedback process um, throughout this semester, and um, in your classroom. Uh, as, as a tool to ensure the success of your students. So how do you establish this early in the school year? And then more importantly, how do you continue to maintain this throughout the school year? Yeah, that's, that's a really key part of it all too. I mean, whereas the learning goals are sort of the centerpiece of, um, of everything and everything anchors off of those, it all has to be happening in a classroom culture that supports the work. And mm -hmm. so being very deliberate and intentional about building a classroom culture based on feedback is something that um, I have been working on for years. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it starts off, well, the big issue is that my students need to do far more work. You know, I teach reading and writing, far more reading, far more writing, especially the writing, than I can respond to myself. And, um, you know, I, I, they should write lots of stuff that I never see because the, the volume of work is really, really important for their growth as writers. But they do still need feedback, right? And mm -hmm. so I need the help of the other 30 people in the room. And it's to start building that foundation so that we get to this point where, like, my dream is that my students just naturally turn to each other for that feedback. Like, hey, I wrote this thing last night classmate could you read it and give me some feedback right so that I don't even have to necessarily step into it all the time I mean of course I do I have very specific places where I do step in and give them my feedback but if I can cultivate this culture where they naturally turn to each other for feedback then that helps me enormously and so it starts with just the humans being comfortable in the room and then being comfortable with each other and feeling valued for the individuals that they are. So that's like a lot of kind of weird community building at the beginning of the year. Like I try to, to get kids laughing and I try to get them sharing weird like details about themselves. And 
um, anything I can get them to do to make connections. So, so, you know, what that looks like is, um, you know, a bunch of questions where like I put up on the screen, something like, do you like dogs or cats? And if dogs, you go to one side of the room and cats, you go to the other side of the room and now talk to each other about why you're on that side of the room. I mean, it seems super simple, but those kinds of things actually start forging connections between kids. So mm-hmm. I do in the first week or two of class, I do a lot of those kinds of things um, every day just to get the kids connected with each other and excited about coming back in the room. So whole class um, connection activities, uh, small group activities, also ways for the kids to feel connected to me too. like the very first assignment that I give my syllabus is in the form of a letter. And so the kids read my syllabus slash letter and then they write back to me. And then I write back to them individually. And that's the very first assignment they do for my class. And every year I realize how absolutely magic it is because the first thing that the kid is doing with the teacher is this personal interaction about who they are as a, mm. as a human being and a student. And so, so it's about, it starts just with connections, connected to the class, connected to each other, connected to their teacher, all of that. And then another thing I have to do is when the time is right, when they've got work to start doing some feedback on, I need to teach them about feedback. Uh, If I make the assumption when they come into me that they understand what it means to give good feedback to another learner, then um, I'm not gonna get them doing good feedback. In fact, they come in often feeling like peer feedback is worthless because they haven't necessarily had the best experiences with it in the past. So I really need to help them understand, like, what do we mean by feedback in this class? And how is it different from evaluation, for example? And how is it different from editing? You know, just talk about all of these different ways that they might interact with each other's writing. And um, I have some guiding principles for feedback in my class, and I have them write those down in their writer's notebook, and we talk about them. And then I also provide some frameworks to them with that have sentence stems for things that they could say when they're giving feedback to somebody. And I teach mostly seniors. And yes, I think sentence stems are appropriate to teach them how to do feedback. They need it. They absolutely need it. Because giving feedback that grows learners is a really hard thing to do. <laughs> so we've got to teach them how to do it. And um, then we continue to practice all of that. So, and then I have a few favorite strategies in my book. I've got like, here's a bunch of things that you can do uh, to get feedback to, on a stack of papers without you necessarily collecting them and doing that all yourself with a pen or whatever. Um, one thing that I picked up from a genius Colorado teacher named Mark Overmeyer is to go start reading through your stack until you find one thing that you could teach to the whole class. And then you teach it to the whole class and then you say to the kids, here's your paper, look at your paper, how would you address that one thing in your paper? Hmm. Beautiful, right? Um, Color coding, I, I have the kids color code for various things, like if it's an argument, like color code your thesis and your data you're using to support your, your claims, color code your claims and color code the warranting that you're doing. And I can even see from across the room, like if a kid has none of the color for the um, for data, for evidence, I can even say from across the room, hey kid, <laughs> why don't you have very much green on there? What's going on? Make a note to yourself. And just like super fast, you know, they spend five minutes maybe color coding. I have this huge basket of, of um, highlighters in my room for this. And it actually teaches them too how a strategy they can use themselves to to pull apart the pieces of parts and pieces of their writing so that they can improve it. 
Uh, mentor text study, of course, like if you teach students how to seek a mentor text of the same kind of, of um, piece of writing that they're trying to do and teach them how to see a mentor text and see the moves that it's making and that kind of thing, that's a skill for them for life, like literally. Um, I mean, I had I was invited to officiate my cousin's wedding a few years ago, and the first thing I did mm. was look at scripts of wedding ceremonies, right. figure out what I was doing. And then finally, of course, peer feedback is my go-to strategy all the time, having them have conversations with each, with each other about their work and um, looking at each other's work and helping each other to improve. So. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned in your book was this idea of speed dating. Yeah. <laughs> Elaborate on that one. That one was the one that stuck out to me. Yeah, that one's actually incredibly effective. And so the idea is I, I put the kids in two concentric circles, um, the inside circle facing out and the outside circle facing in, and they line up directly across from somebody. Um, and then it's very simple, actually. They have their draft in their hands, um, either on paper or on a Chromebook or something. And I say, all right, inside circle, you have 30 seconds. Just walk the person through your paper. Tell them, point at it, and tell them all the things happening in your work. And then I'll give them like 30 seconds, and then I'll say, okay, outside circle, now your turn. Walk the walk your partner through your paper and just sort of scroll through it and tell them what you have. Okay, now talk to each other for 30 seconds. All right, sweet. Outside circle, take one step to the right. Do the whole process again with a new person. And it's, um, it's wonderfully chaotic. The noise in the room is fantastic as they're talking to each other. And I wander around and just like listen for snippets of conversation that I might be able to pull out at the end. So then maybe we'll do that with like five talking partners and then I'll mm -hmm. have them all go sit down and then I'll say, all right, let's hear something cool that you saw in someone else's paper and have kids volunteer or I might, I might call in a few kids just to get some ideas in the room. So this is a good strategy to use when kids are in the middle of a drafting, like the drafting stage where they don't have anything really finalized and things are super tentative and it'll be really helpful for them to see how other people are approaching it. Like with the multi-genre paper, I use it with that. Uh, but it's it's a lot of fun. It's just chaotic, so you have to be ready for that. But it's it's a lot of fun. Well, and it can also help with a kid that does, you know, like you were mentioning, the drafting kid doesn't have anything done. Yeah. Well, they can talk about how they're planning for yeah. it and may put them right on the spot. And like, ooh, I need to start coming up with something. Yeah. So. And I making, like that. Yeah, and making them talk through their tentative plan like five times in a row with five different kids, that helps mm -hmm. them figure out where they're going with it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I love that one. That one just jumped out at me, and I'm looking forward to giving that one a try. Yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that you said, which I've said many times, if you take points away from the class, you do have to fill it with something. Um, and so if you're not giving points in your class, how do students know they're progressing? Yeah, that's a really good question because we train the students to look to the grade book, to look for the numbers in the grade book to let them know how they're doing, right? And mm -hmm. to me, that just feels kind of, uh, we're taking a lot away from the students that they should be owning themselves. And so after many semesters of not doing a very good job at this, I finally figured out um, a way to do this was to have my students choose out of those 10 goals that I have for the class, I have the kids choose three that are gonna be theirs to individualize their own experience in the course. Of course, they're still working on all of the goals because I'm teaching towards all of the goals, but for the purposes of their own individual learning and assessment, 
um, they pick three. And what they do then with those three is they make this chart in their writer's notebook that I call the plan for learning and growth. And so I ask them to rephrase the goal into their own words so they could tweak it towards their needs and then articulate a baseline for where they're starting and then articulate where they hope to end up after a conversation we have about what could success look like with each of these goals. Like, where do you want to end up? Where do you want to be at the end of the semester? And then help them figure out some things they could focus on to get from their baseline where they are to where they want to end up. And so what the kids end up creating is their own sort of learning progression that they can follow for each of their learning goals. And then every week I ask them to take a look at their at their plan and see where they're at. And I have them craft some pages in their writer's notebooks where they can track their progress, track their learning and their growth. And I give them time every week to, um, to engage with that and ask them to turn and talk with the people around them about how they're doing. And so it's like this constant conversation about their goals and how they're doing and what's going well and what's not going well. And I think a key point of this is that makes it makes it work is I do it too. Every single semester, I make new learning goals for myself as a reader and a writer. And mm -hmm. I use the goals that I have for the class, but I have to tweak them for the work that I'm doing myself as a reader and a writer. And I have the kids help me come up with the strategies to get from my baseline to where I wanna end up. And, um, and every week when I, when I say, okay, let's do a check-in on our learning goals, I'm accountable to them. And I say, here's how things are going for me. And I put my tracking pages under the dot cam and I'm honest with them when it's not going well. I ask them for advice and then I will say to them, all right, your turn, update your tracking pages, let the people at your table know how it's going. Let's have some conversation, et cetera. So I just kind of keep it in the forefront of the class constantly, this idea about having goals and making progress and tracking where you are. It's just very mm -hmm. individualized to each kid. And I like that you're vulnerable with your kids and you're showing them your process through it and you invite them to give you feedback along the way too. Yeah, I think that's really important. Like if the work is worth us asking the kids to do, I think it's worth us doing as well. So I do as much of it as I can that I ask the kids to do. Yeah. So most teachers, and I know you do too, have to give a final grade at the end of the term. So how do you do this? Yeah, I can't get away from having to um, give a grade at the end of the term. It's something fully embedded in my system that I teach in as most teachers across the country. So, but what I've gotten to is I, my students actually select their own grades. And I used to say like, argue for your grade, but I don't want it to be like, let me prove to you teacher that I deserve an A. Like that's still, that language still, I kind of just bristle at that because that's still, mm -hmm. it, it's just not about learning, you know? And so, so I very deliberate about the word select, like to select a grade. And I, they, my students do this by writing to me a letter that's in the form of a story at the end of the semester. And it's a letter because um, it's a, a personal interaction between the student and their teacher. Um, I would like to personalize it there, just like the first thing of the year is them writing a letter to me, writing a letter to them with my syllabus and them writing me back. So this is another letter to end the semester, but in the form of a story, that um, I had a student a few years ago very naturally just write about her progress in one of the learning goals as a story. And I started realizing, you know what? Story is how we understand everything as humans. It's like the, it's the air we breathe. We don't even notice it. 
because it's everywhere. And so if I could actually help my students think about their learning journey in my class as a story, like literally who were the main characters? Are you the protagonist or the antagonist in your own learning journey? Um, what were the conflicts? What are the settings where the learning took place? Were there any symbols that popped up? You know, all of those those tools that we use to write stories, if I could have my students use them to write about their learning journey, they would really know it really well. They would use that story to help understand what they learned and remember it really well. And so in the last semester of the class, they write these stories and they're wonderful. And every time I read them, I'm just thinking, yes, this is like, this is student learning, student agency, super empowered language on display. Like my students are learning. And my book, that's why my book has several letters in it from my students, because I really wanted readers to see what's possible if you do um, shift away from from grading traditionally. Um, and I also, like, I have two other required grade moments. I have to do progress grades at two points in the semester. And so mm -hmm. anytime I have to put in a grade officially, I ask the kids to tell me what to put in and make it this opportunity for self-reflection and self-evaluation. I just did that this week. I have to file progress report grades tomorrow. So my students filled out a Google form that asked them to do some reflection on their goals and how they're doing so far in the class and all of that. And just like, all right, so what grade should I put in? It really kind of captures where you're at right now and why do you think uh, that should be the grade? So, and teachers often wonder um, what happens uh, if I disagree with what the student has requested or what the student has selected. I have to be honest with you, I hardly ever disagree. They do such a good job with this, with selecting their own grades, it's amazing. But if I do disagree, um, I am able to say things like this. So I don't necessarily disagree with the A, but I feel like your letter could be a little more detailed with some more, so I could really see the story of your learning and growth. I invite you to write a little bit more and, and to turn it back into me and then let's talk. Or I could say, I don't necessarily disagree with this, but there's a really important major assignment that you didn't finish. Uh, would you like to finish it? And then let's re-engage this, this conversation. So I can always, um, give put it back in the kids' hands to keep working and keep learning and keep improving. So I really love that part of it. Yeah, what I found, you know, is because I've had the same question: how, well, what do you do? Because I do select a grade too, um, and I've had that same question: what do you do when you disagree with a kid? And most, actually, most of the questions I get are: what do you do if a kid picks? Um, a grade that's higher than what you would think. Um, the funny thing is, is I think in all the years I've done this, I had one kid pick higher, but I've had more kids, dozens and dozens of kids go lower than what I thought. And that's, you know, nobody's ever concerned about a kid picking lower. They're always concerned about the kid picking higher. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that just, you know, and I, do something. So my, I, I'm intrigued by the whole letter and I may be trying it this year, but we do it as a conversation and I just say, okay, so help me to understand this. And yeah, same thing. And the kids either, you know, they'll, they'll figure it out themselves or if they're holding firm and they can justify it, then yeah. what's the harm? <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, there, there are definitely times that like the kid and I will talk it out and I'll say, in the end, you need to decide, what do you want me to put in? And then mm -hmm. that's good, you know? But um, so a lot of teachers do um, what you do, which is having the conversation to negotiate there. And there's that's great. And I think that that works really well for a lot of teachers. For me, um, there's a few things with that. Like I am a I like am a, a, a processor. Like I need to to read and think before I, I respond. 
And um, especially if a kid has put something out there that um, I don't necessarily agree with, I want to make sure that my response really honors the kid and that I have, I'm very thoughtful about how I do it. And so I just harbor some fears and anxieties in myself about um, being able to do that well on the spot. So that is one reason why I have them write to me first. But other reasons too, is I feel like if they do write to me first, they really pull it together in order to, to do that writing. They have to really think through it all. So I think that that's pretty important as well. That's another reason why I have them do it. And then the other reason is just sheer numbers of kids and finding like the space and the time to meet with every single one of them. I, I have colleagues who do it. Um, I just haven't figured out a way to do it in a way at the end of the semester when I'm trying to finish everything else up that doesn't just feel like I'm not going to survive it, you know? <laughs> oh, I know that. I know that feeling. Yeah. It takes a good week to yeah. just go. Yeah. 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 But the conversations well, are important, so yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and for me, they don't just come blank. I mean, they've been preparing for, I give them about a week to prepare. They're putting together yeah. portfolios and thinking about it and going through. But I love the idea of adding that letter level to it. So yeah. they're coming prepared and I'm coming in prepared too. Yeah. Well, Sarah, so what are some um, resources that you would recommend to listeners who are interested in this pointless journey? Well, I definitely hope my book is helpful, of course, and not just to teachers of reading and writing. I mean, um, I happen to uh, I happen to be married to a high school biology teacher, and he essentially uses all the same strategies with his biology students to very great success. So I definitely hope that the book is helpful um, to teachers for figuring out a place to get started. And in the last chapter in the epilogue of my book, um, I do have a couple of really brief resources about like, here's some first steps you could take. And also just maybe think about doing more of this and less of this to like start your journey towards um, a different way of grading. So um, I've also done quite a bit of writing on my blog, thepapergraders.org. Um, in fact, when I was working on the book, my genius editor, Katie Woodray, she at one point, she said, you know, I wonder if you should, you should pause and just do some short form writing for a while. And so I decided I would write one blog post for every sort of step of the process along the way um, through the fall of a semester, fall of a school year while I was getting my classroom all set up to be gradeless. Um, so all of that is on there. Um, Alfie Cohn's Case Against Grades is a really great place to start if you just want a really quick um strongly written argument about why you might want to do something different with grades. And I'm sure that um, most people in our audience here, Aaron, are probably familiar with that. And of course, everything you all have collected on teachers going gradeless is um, an, a tremendous resource with all this. I definitely recommend to find a thought buddy if you can. Um, my colleagues at school that are constantly pushing me and challenging my thinking um, have really helped me to grow as a teacher. So if it's possible to find another like person in your school who might be willing to start the journey with you, that could help quite a bit. Um, and if you can't find someone in your school, like, you know, get on Twitter. And um, mm-hmm. I actually talk with readers on Twitter all the time, and I really love doing that. And then finally, our students really understand this stuff. They understand it incredibly well. They understand the whole game involved with points and they know that it's not about learning. So some honest conversation with your students, I think is a really great place to start too. I have learned so much from my students in my journey of uh, becoming a gradeless teacher. They've helped me every step along the way. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree.
Moving away from points, grades, and grading is difficult for teachers. They help us maintain control over our classroom, and we use the excuse that we are required to give grades as reason to maintain the status quo. But change doesn't happen unless someone pushes back. And teachers like Sarah are pushing back because they want more for their learners. If you want to find out more about Sarah, you can follow her blog at thepapergraders.org and on Twitter at at Sarah M. Zerwin. And you can find these links in the show notes at teachersgoinggradeless.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you do not miss future installments of TG2Cast. And remember to leave a rating and review. We appreciate your support, and it really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening.